Welcome to this week's episode of Atlantic Tales, when we'll hear from filmmaker and playwright Dermot Petty, as well as Tommy Baker, a puppeteer and puppet builder. First today, let's meet Dermot Petty. I sat down with the filmmaker and playwright at his cottage overlooking the Atlantic Ocean near Doolan in North Clare. Dermot founded Bally Cartoon Productions in 2017 to create, produce and tell stories that are inspired by the people and area of North Clare. He worked in Dublin as a barman for a time before setting out to see the world but he would finally return to settle where he was born and raised. I grew up in Listonvarna, which is about five miles from here. It's the same parish and the same football team, St Brecon's, but my dad was from Doolan. So I now live in the house that he grew up in here in Doolan's. But there's a very close-knit but very isolated spot in the 1960s and 1970s, you know. Tourism was big, but it was very small village life. And then I left around 79 when I lived in Amsterdam, I lived in Holland, and I lived in America, I lived in New York, Boston for a long time, and then in Los Angeles. And I moved back to Ireland in 2006, and I've been here since that time. I was went and did a, like a BA and an MA, and I've been living in Dublin since about 2014. So, Lovely spot yeah. here, and the cottage has all that history. But what do you remember of going to school and...? Uh, it was certainly different. It was like one channel land, you know, you felt you were cut off. I mean, I was originally born in London, but my parents moved, I was back when we were about five. And here, you know, it was like your family and your neighbours, you know, you, you spend a lot of time playing out in the fields. So was, that was really wonderful. I didn't particularly care for school. I was considered slow, I had pretty bad dyslexia, and that wasn't really a thing then. It was only later I kind of realised, you know, how kind of did hold one back a lot, you know. I mean, I think they met, when I went back to college, they were really good at working with someone who had dyslexia and explained a lot to me. But it was definitely different. I mean, it was, you know, the summertime was wonderful here. In the wintertime, as you can see, like a day like today, the rain is bending. But it certainly was very fertile for your imagination. There was a lot of wonderful aspects about it that really I found later on, you know, stood to me, you know. And, and it's a great place for stories like this house here. My uncle brother would have been someone who did a lot of recitations, ghost stories. My mother's parents were in Lackmore and West Clare and you went up there on a Sunday. People had a lot of stories, had a lot of, there was a lot of history there and that stirred my imagination a lot. History was always something I loved, but I like because there's a story there. I remember I liked the stories of the Bible because I could remember them and I could retell them afterwards. Couldn't necessarily read them, but I loved history. Um, and that's like my last play, two days in September, dealt with you know the Renin ambush. But I remember in my grandfather's home in Lackamore, hearing about it for the first time. It was almost like it happened yesterday. And my auntie in Doolan had married a man, Johnny Dunleavy, and he'd been in the War of Independence, and he used to tell the stories. So history I always loved, um, and I did like English. I wasn't necessarily great at it, you know, but 
I loved the stories. And in secondary school, we had Father Tarpy. He, uh, he, he just passed away and he was a very nice man. Miss Green from Ballyvohan taught me history and she was a lovely woman. But I was lost there, you know what I mean? I, I actually felt very liberated when I finished school. Um, that'd be my take on it. And that's very different from most people. Most people have great memories and great times. So for me, the best day of my life was the day I finished secondary school. And I, I still haven't changed that opinion. <laughs> now there's some things have, you know, reached it, like, you know, yeah. putting on a play or, you know, moments with people or whatever, you know, certainly would be up there. Was there much drama in school? Had you a chance to express yourself as a <laughs> There was some. I mean, there's always been great drama here. I wasn't part of it. Like, um, a lot of plays were put on. I was in a play, my leaving search year, but it was terrible and I was terrible in it. I played a, a Spanish gigolo and particularly then I was a real skinny ginger haired guy. So I don't, it was, you know, I pitied the poor audience that had to listen to it. There wasn't a lot of drama. I mean, I was interested and I enjoyed it. Um, but even like television, I found it a little boring because I'd find the detective series after three episodes, I knew what was going to happen. But there was always things you'd suddenly see. Woody Allen played against Sam, played one night. There was Catholics by Brian Moore. There was a great production, you know, um, documentaries. But it was really when I left and I went to Dublin and I started seeing cinema for the first time. We used to go to the Burn Cinema in Ennis a lot, but we often went down there because we, we could sneak off and get a pint. So I, I don't know how dedicated <laughs> a cinephile I was then, but I did see Midnight Express, which was a brilliant film at the time. I pretended to see Convoy with Chris Christopherson, but I got cut out because I hadn't seen it and uh, my alias was, uh, <laughs> was ruined. <laughs> so, but I mean, they were very innocent times. Well, I got into punk rock when I was about 16, 17, so I started living for music. And really what that was, was it was a, a kind of a porthole to the outside world. Because if you read like the hot press or enemy, they'd be mentioning this book or this movie or this piece of theater. So trying to find what you were about. So I was a bartender. I, I went to work in O'Donoghue's in Dublin. It was a great job. I mean, I'm a hard worker, so I just, once I have a place that can, you know, do that, it was fine. I traveled. My family all worked in construction. They're all very handy. I'm not. So I was, you know, I'd love to be handy. I really would, but I'm not. But it was trying to find a fit. And when I went to the States, I'd start taking evening classes. Just kind of bold, because I was a legal immigrant, but I was just curious. I remember I took a, a Super 8 film class and the teacher was a woman called Nancy Sugarman and she said, anyone can make a movie. And I was really taken aback by that. I was like, that's really cool. And I just started playing around with old Super 8 films, started to learn about it. But it was funny because Ireland wasn't a very visual culture. It's become very visual like. But like my partner, Joanna Hanran does the plays. She's like a fine art background. So she's very solidified in that visual art. I didn't really know that much about it, you know what I mean? I, I'm learning and there's an awful lot still to learn and it's wonderful, like. But that, that was a, a whole opening to that. But to me, it's the stories, be it cinema or theatre, that's what is there. And it's like, that's why I came back to Ireland because to me, it's the stories to be told here. And I have kind of controversial views on cinema. I think Irish cinema, say, you have a lot of great actors, 
and there's some great films, but I don't think Irish cinema has really emerged yet, not like Korean cinema, because a lot of the films are more or less a British or American company coming in, they hire a couple of locals, and it's like, Jay's Les, that was great, but I think there's a lot of great stories, and this is my mission as such. When did you start travelling? When did you decide? Um, was that after Dublin? After Dublin, yeah, I went and I had a bit of a wanderlust. I'd read a few books about people that travelled, and I just wanted to do it, so I left Ireland on the boat you couldn't no one could afford to fly then and I went to London and I stayed with some friends that we knew there and then I took a, a, a ferry from England to the Hook Holland and I always remember it was like talk about wet around the ears I got on my bike and I got on the autobahn and when I say a bike, it was a bicycle. I bought for £50 of some guy from Salt Hill. And it seemed Dewey's at the time, still the best investment. I travelled all over the country with it. And it's early in the morning, and the cars are screaming by, and finally some guy got off in a car, and in broken English told me I was crazy, get off. So I had to lift the bike, got on, and I ended up in the middle of nowhere in Holland. And I just always remember I took the train. I was like, you know what? This might be the easiest way to get in there. And a great bike, but within a month, my bicycle and my passport got stolen all in the one night. So, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it was really a whole different world. And I made every mistake possible. Still was wonderful, though. I played Gaelic football with... Um, there was a, one of the first Gaelic football teams ever in was in Amsterdam, and it had Kevin O'Donoghue who had captained the Kerry on the 21s. There was a lot of lads from Mayo, Kilchimok particularly, Sligo and Dublin, and Kerry and Down. Now I should add, and this is very important, Pat, I was the most useless footballer that ever lived. It just was a great social outlet. Like, um, But I loved Amsterdam. I mean, it was a great city. And everyone thinks, you know, oh, you went and smoked pot. Not really. Didn't really have the money for it, to be honest. Like, no, it wasn't that pure. But there's great museums there. There's the Van Gogh Museum, the Museum of the Thing. The canals are gorgeous. It's as pretty as Venice, because I've been to Venice. Both beautiful cities. So it was a lovely place. But then I returned to Ireland and decided to go to the States. Um, and again, it was more of a sense of adventure. Now, the 80s were very tough economically and a lot of people had to leave. But I think my mind was made up. I wanted to have adventure, you know, see the world. And I, when I went to the States, then I started Barton and I was in New York for a little bit, but Boston most of the time. And then I moved to Los Angeles, which was very different. Both wonderful places, though, you know what I mean? Boston's very Irish, um, but it's a very small city. It's very compact, you know, very good place to get grounded. Los Angeles is very different too. It's actually prettier than people think it is, but it's a frontier town. People are from everywhere else, you know. So the Angelinos, the natives are lovely, but um, the other thing is just really peculiar. But I'm really glad I went. There was an awful lot that I learned from that, you know. And, and were you surrounded or were you attracted to the arts in Los Angeles? Because in Dublin, you were surrounded by music. In Amsterdam, the oh, art right. and the museums and all of that. What was in Los Angeles from a creativity perspective? That's a great question. Well, you see, the, the truth is probably, when I got to Los Angeles, I was very immersed into the arts because I'd been in Boston and I was there for about 14 years. And there I sort of found myself, you know, found the arts because I, I was in a, a very kind of working in an Irish bar and it was a very drink culture, etc. And, it was, and it, was, it was cool, it was fun, but I started... I remember I was one of the people I worked for, his wife is an artist, and she started showing me, you know, different 
museums and different places to go and then I started being more involved and then I started making short little films and I joined the drama group, the Sugon Theatre Group, which were very good there. But when I got to Los Angeles, it was a question when I moved back to Ireland or go there and a friend explained, you might as well go while you're here now and see it. And I learned through osmosis because I did learn, I, I worked a bit on the fringe. I worked for the Shoah Foundation. I worked in a couple of movies, but really that's probably where I learned to write was Los Angeles. And really what it was, was it kind of scared me because I met so many people who were very qualified, had been to the top schools, etc., and could talk in the abstract about writing, about three-act structures, etc., but were terrified to write a word because perfection would stop them from creating it. Whereas I was like, you know, if you don't do it, it'll never happen. And I think that I was really grateful. I worked in advertising for a bit, which was very interesting, a very peculiar business, but you know, I was glad to have that experience. And then I did a feature film, it was very, very low budget. I learned a lot and I was like, you know what, it's time to go back and see if you can use it. Now saying that, it's not like I came back and I knew everything. No, I wanted to make films here. What was difficult was I had lived away for a long time. I didn't, it was like starting all over again. On the plus side, the technology has changed an awful lot. But on the other hand, like Joan, the director from my plays and stuff has talked about, in many ways, theatre, you're reaching the audience much quicker. Film is changing and changed an awful lot in the last couple of years. I mean, I still want to make feature films. How that's going to happen, I think, is difficult. But there's something wonderful, like I'm working on a, a play right now, Body of Water, I'm doing some revisions to it, and I'm like, I'm going to have a reading, and if I choose to, you know, we'll bring it to fruition in, in front of a live audience. It'll be, you know, North Clare, West Clare, but they're a tough audience. They, they'll tell you very quickly if they don't yeah. like it, do you know what I mean? The only punk rocker in the village. What's the background? What's the story? The background is around 1978, 77, I got into punk rock. And it was more by accident and design. It was, I was like a B Elvis fan. I wasn't that big in pop, but again, the 70s was very, it, there wasn't much going on. So you got into everything. So Radio Luxembourg came on, but then punk rock came and it was The Clash and The Sex Pistols were really exciting. There was a band from Dublin called The Radiators from Space. I thought were brilliant. But John Peel would have a radio show for between 10 to 12 on a night, weeknight. The irony was here in North Clare, you could only get Radio Luxembourg at night and Radio Moscow of all things. But at 10 o'clock, you could get the BBC One and it was an Eddie Cochran song and then John Peel would come out and he was great because he would play music he felt you should know. So the first time you'd hear it, you were like, I'm not so sure about that. The second time or third time you were, wow. And it just opened up all these things. It also was just time to rebel. It was like, you know, the world, I was gonna, you know, change the world, you know, one song at a time. Now, I never formed a band or anything like that, but the, the reality was I was the only punk rocker in the village. I mean, you know, lads were into status quo, the girls were into ABBA, and I was, yeah. you know, I was <laughs> lost there. Like in the play, I say, like the joke is there's um, Barry Dillon who's does some of the music for some of the plays we do. He was into punk rock, but he was away in boarding school at Moat. So I said there was like a half punk rocker. So I was the yeah. only punk rocker. <laughs> what I did, it was, it was Joan O'Hanrahan, um, you know, the director and my partner. She was the one that said, you should do something with this. And I created a one uh, man play. He played at Barnstable in England the first time and it went down really well. It was in a French festival, no new one there. And Joan had to be in Australia at the time visiting her daughter. But 
I was like really encouraged by that. Then we brought it to Liston Varna. We had it at the Royal Spa and it did really well. We had it at the Writers Festival in Dublin. This all happened just in 2020. COVID happened. Boom. Bang. Then unfortunately, I also got 2000, September 2020, I got very sick. It was my adrenal gland. So I had to be rushed to hospital. So my health has been challenged since. So performing was tough. But last Easter, I decided I was going to do it, and we went to the Edinburgh Fringe this summer, last summer. And I said to Joan, look at if perchance, you know, I'm not strong enough to do it, and since I got really sick, I also have two arthritic knees, so I can't pogo dance, which, you know, which is pretty, a phenomenal part of the play, I should add, you know, <laughs> but, and Edinburgh Fringe is a gorgeous city, but it's real intense. It's in your face. You, you have five minutes to set up, five minutes to strike. There's a play on before you. There's a play on afterwards. There's something like 5,000 shows going on at any time there. So you're in competition, but it was brilliant. And again, in front of strangers, etc. and it went down really well. But the premise of it was, the amount of people that came to us and said, I remember, I was the only punk rocker in my village as well. And you're like, Christ, all right. You know what I mean? So it was, it, it, it struck a chord. Yeah. I mean, you could have been maybe the only got or the only take it or the only, you know, whatever. But it was that, I think, especially in this day and age, people are trying to find their tribe. And often it is like an interest they have. And, you know, sometimes it may not be the arts. It could be, you know, fishing or, you know, vintage cars, but, it's finding that sort of tribe that you can talk to, etc. Arts are very good because you can explore. I mean, because when I went into like punk rock, it was very much part of the artistic moment in the 20th century as much as the music thing, because it's very much on the principle everyone should be able to do something with it. It may be simple, it may not be like the art of uh, Michelangelo or Da Vinci, but it's a beginning. And then it's up to you where you take that. So I love that aspect of it. It was also just my coming of age. This is was my deck of cards. This was my sort of finding myself. So and it, it resonates. Now, we hope to tour again in the summer, but it really does depend on my health if I'd be up to performing it. But I'm really more of a writer than a performer at this stage. I mean, that's the, the reality of it. But it was, particularly Liston Varner, because Trad was so big here. Yes, of I course. I think that was, that was the contrasting thing too. It's like, you know I mean? The cliche thing is I was taught Tin Whistle by Michael Russell, but so was about a hundred other couple of hundred other kids in the thing. I was terrible at it. But it was part of it here. People loved it. My father loved traditional music. You know, it was jigs and reels and nothing else like. And still is. And that's good. That's part of the defining characteristic of the place. But it was also like, for a lot of us growing up in that time, we were kind of stuck in time. Now it seems very, you know, it's very trendy there. You know, you have the advent of media in your face. While the Atlantic Way is here, you know, the Iron Islands, tourism's much bigger. Again, most of our generation immigrated and probably came back at some point, so they've seen the world. So it's a much different microcosm. But there's great stories in that that period of time. There really is, you know. Because um, even like, going to, again, you just said, Dunahoo's, to me it was like, I'm in Dublin, punk rock is here, and I happened to be right in the heart of it. So I was very blessed that way, you know. Because the punk scene in Dublin was pretty small too. It wasn't, it seemed big from a distance, but it was actually quite small. But it was, it was, it was great fun. Great fun, great crack. They watch our every move. They wouldn't think twice about shooting us down as we walked down the street. They have armoured cars, army lorries, rifles, pistols, grenades, machine guns. One of your other works, Two Days in September? Yeah, Two Days in September. And you mentioned yeah. Renine and the yeah, Ambush. Yeah. How did that work come about? Two Days in September came about was 
Clare County Council had the dedicated commemorations in Siobhan Walcahy and I had been working on it before that but it was just more a sketch idea. So I sent in the proposal for it and really what it was was, as I'd mentioned earlier, my grandfather's from my, my mother's from my I should say, they grew up, he's in Lackmore, the top of it. And my play is a very crucial part of it because a lot of the volunteers came from that area and also after the ambush a lot of them escaped to there. And when the British tried to come up to the roads were so bad they couldn't get in. So it, it led to the anger that led to the burning of Innistime in Lahinch and Milton Malby. I always thought it was an incredible story. I remember the first time hearing it was in my grandfather's kitchen and there was some neighbours talking about it. It was like it happened yesterday. And some of the houses had been safe houses, some of the things that had happened. How, And it was a story that hadn't been told and some of it was more a horrible accident of, of history. Um, 19, I remember in 1966 um, seeing all the commemorations for, say, 1916. By 1970, everything had turned on its head because of the troubles up north. By 71 or 72, republicanism had become a very tough thing to deal with because suddenly, you know, you had things like the Birmingham bombings going on. You had Bloody Sunday going on. So it was this range of emotions. It was... And it became a difficult subject matter. And I don't think a lot of that generation had a chance to express it, even to celebrate the, the 50th or the 100th year, because then COVID happened, unfortunately. So it was right after that. But I did feel there was enough of the stories that hadn't been told there. Did a lot of research. I mean, one of the things is, because they were very careful, they didn't want to be sort of a pro-IRA, rah-rah. But on the other hand, I did feel that a lot of the subtext of the story, I don't think have been covered that well in other works that I've seen. Mainly, like if you take to this area from here down to Milltown Malby, down to Kilrush, the land wars were so brutal, so terrifying. I mean, that's why a, a lot of overseas people are always kind of surprised with the small farm holdings, but they meant everything. That's why we don't have villages because if you're outside of that, you had a bit of independence from the landlord. But, you know, it wasn't just the famine, it was all the little famines before that. So by the 1920s, people were just fed up to their hen's teeth with it. And it wasn't that they hated the British, they hated the British system of rule because it had kept them down. At the same time, it's a war, it's messy. There was things on all sides that were ugly, you know. Tom Barry said the reason they su succeeded in the 20s was the Irish were more afraid of the Irish than they were the British. And that was important so much. My uncle had told a story where there was a couple who had sold turf and they fired bullets in the window. And he always regretted that till the day he died. Now, he believed totally what he did, but that just told you the complexity of what happens there. But then you see what happened in Innistimon and Lehinch in Milton Malby and the behaviour of the Crown forces was atrocious. But the strange thing was, it was almost like a propaganda coup for the War of Independence because the Manchester Guardian, a lot of British tourists and British officials came and saw what happened and the government were denying it actually ever happened and blaming the Irish for doing it or the IRA when in fact it was the British Crown Forces and it became a question not in our name so there had to be some kind of no no negotiation but what I do find that it was really not that well known and the amount of people that came up and was the first time they'd heard of it I found remarkable at the same time there was a lot of people that came to it they were very knowledgeable and awoke in an interest. A lot of people that got caught in it had nothing to do. They were not members of the IRA. They had no notion. They were just farmers. They were 
fishermen, business people that got caught in the crossfire. I also just think the story, the history, is not so much the litany of wrongs, it's rather how the people succeeded in spite of. I think that's a far more important story because it's remarkable when you think the advent of this nation came from that and it was by ordinary people because the one thing we say at the very start is, and Mary Buckley says it, this was led by common people. It wasn't led by some aristocrats or highly educated or, say, priests or whatever. And that's anything wrong with that. But this was by ordinary men and women who had taken the initiative and had the courage to say, no more, we stand, this, we, we, you know, we, this is where we die. And that is kind of an extraordinary story. And I think that hasn't really been told. I mean, you have some issues. I, th uh, I think like uh, The Wind That Shakes the Bar, I think, dealt with it very well. I thought Michael Collins as a film was quite disappointing because I lived in America at the time and you weren't given the reason why these things happened. You know, it didn't happen in a vacuum. Again, it's, it's also just, it was also just the bravery of people and a lot of things. Not so much, you know, that they had a gun, but they took care of wounded people or they made sure that no one got shot, etc. You know, that, that's it. But I also just think it's just great storytelling. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not that idealistic. I, to me, it's just, there's a great story to be told there. And the response was remarkable. We hoped to maybe maybe play it twice. I had issues at my house just trying to get it finished. We played in Doolan, Full House. We played in Milton Malby. They asked us back the second time. We played in Currafin. Um, we're going to be playing in Lehinch at the Lehinch Traditional Festival. It's going to be in Flanagan's Bar, which is one of the places that was yeah. burned down, you know. You know, with a great group of people working with us. Like, you know, I mean, it, it was because of COVID, we did it like it was a multimedia. We had film sections and then we had some acting sections. We seem to forget COVID wasn't that long ago. So you couldn't really perform because of saliva, you know, things where things are changing. But it worked out really well because it brought a certain kind of feeling to it. It was also inspired this like really good theatre in Scotland, particularly in the 70s in Joan Littlewood, where they brought political theatre to the communities themselves and made it their own story. Because my big concern is not so much, you know, that the story hasn't been told, but the story of the regular folk could be lost. And sometimes I think just to appease the educational thing, sometimes I think these things get lost. I really want to tell stories about the area. That is my, you know, wish. A friend of mine says, like, you know, you're like a modern day Shanakir using technology and all these things to bring the stories there. And really he's trying to get it an audience. We've been very lucky. I mean, the Bally Cartoon Players, we've done like three productions, Jiving Lessons for the Broken Hearted, The Only Punk Rocker in the Village and Two Days in September. And they've done really well. So we would like to keep building on that and probably bring it outside of Clare. You know, you'd love to get funding from the Arts Council, but it seems to be impossibility. Clare Arts, Siobhan Mulcahy has been very good. That's difficult, but you know, that can't define us either. You know, it's really where we're very fortunate. We have found audiences are interested in what we want to do. Body of Water is dealing with a murder mystery that happened here in the 1960s. Now I'm changing it totally from it, but it is really a, kind of amazing what can happen when, I say, a body of a of some person comes ashore and it turns out they've been murdered. What it can do to an area, but again, it's just stories. You know, I just think there's a wealth of material there. Um, North Clare, particularly Doolan, had a tradition of storytelling, and I'd like to be part of that. You know, you have some great people like Andreas Destakik is doing amazing work. You know, and I've been lucky, like I've worked with some great actors here, you know, Claire Varden, you know, Jerry Howard, James Rahelly, a lot of really, you know, really strong actors. So I'm, the material and the talent are here. I think it's more me learning how to utilize that. Coming up, we'll meet puppeteer and puppet builder Tommy Baker following a recent performance at Glore in Ennis. Claire and Tommy. 
Telling tales of winter, singing softly as Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Tommy Baker is a Clare-based artist best known for his work with puppets as well as storytelling and improvisation. Tommy also makes puppets. He has a degree in fine art from Galway Institute, where he began his journey into puppetry, which in turn led him to becoming a performer with Marionette Theatre Stockholm for six years. He returned to Ireland in 2002, where he established Your Man's Puppets and performs internationally as a puppeteer and storyteller. I caught up with Tommy just after he had finished a production with Kjol Connected at Glore in Ennis. I grew up in Clare. I actually was, I was born in New Jersey and my family moved back to Ireland, both Irish parents. I lived in Shannon for a while and then lived in Ennis for a short while and then moved to Quinn. So I spent a good few years in, in Quinn uh, as a child, kind of growing up there, and loved the place. It was, it, was a, it was a nice experience, and the abbey there was our playground, which was lovely to grow up in. And yeah, there was a lot of people around that area that I was fond of. And then we, well, we moved to Galway to a place called Monavay, and there my parents had a pub. And in the pub, I think I got an awful lot of influences of characters because there was always like different people coming into the bar and, and this and you get the old timers kind of going, ah, how's it going there? And uh, there'd be different characters that came in. There was one character, Maggie, who um, she was an old woman on a bicycle and she uh, once a week she'd come in and do the shopping in the town. She'd call into the pub and she'd have one little whiskey and then she'd go on her way. But the, the guys in the bar would always kind of, Ah, Maggie, Maggie, go on, sing us a song. I know I, I wouldn't. Ah, go on, go on, sing us a song. I know, I don't, I, I don't think so. Go on, I'll, I'll buy you a drink. And then she'd start kind of like, Mellow, the moonlight, <laughs> the shine is beginning. So characters like that and voices like that, I, I just seem to have an ear for it. Well, then in the yeah. pub you picked up all that interest though, or were you interested in drama and storytelling in school? Not, it, it, it didn't occur to me that that's, that's kind of what it was. It was, um, I was interested in people. I just always had great fun with, with different characters. Like, I, I never thought of theatre as a, a road to go down. My, my father would be kind of working class and he worked in factories and that's kind of where I was, I thought I was heading at the time. But this kind of playfulness uh, was always in the background. And I had uh, an uncle who was always in the pub in the evenings, but he never drank alcohol. And he was a Shanachie and he would do recitations and he would make up stories on the spot. And I used to love visiting him and, and I'd cycle a good distance to hear him as a young lad and that. So, yeah, there was a keen interest in, in stories and, and people. And was so, there more of an interest, Tommy, in that than being out playing football? Or? Yeah, I wasn't a sports person. I had two left feet and, and <laughs> I was, yeah, I was not allowed on the pitch that often. I got into cross-country running for a while. I'm not a tall person and I used to... Uh, team up with a guy called Paul and uh, he was over six foot so for every step he took it took me like two or three but we'd keep in time so I was I was fast but no I like playing sport but I couldn't sit down and watch a game <laughs> it's not it's not the thing for me but uh, when I was 17 my parents moved to Gort 
I actually ended up staying with my grandmother for a year and she was a real matriarch, uh, lovely woman. And I think some of my characters have an essence of her in it. I'd, I'd like to think that anyway. But while I was staying with her, I was drawing all the time. And she saw an ad in the paper for the art college in Galway. And she filled in an application for it without telling me. And basically said, you're going presenting your portfolio. So I went, I went in and I got it. But I, was, I left school, I was still quite young, and I really didn't know. Like, I knew I was interested in art, but studying was, was kind of, I didn't expect it really. But I, I went through fine art, painting and printmaking, and in the second last year of it, sculpture came into the, the college. And when I saw the sculpture, I started going hell for leather into wood and papier-mâché and anything I could get my hands on. But at the time, they said, look, you'll have to start at the start again if you're going into sculpture so I said okay I'll wait until I, I finish college but I started making puppets in my teens just for myself or, or making characters I just had an interest from watching the Muppets and Pat Bracken on the streets of Galway yeah. so I had made puppets I hadn't really started performing them until when I was in college and I was absolutely broke and a guy that I was sharing a flat with said to me, why don't you take the puppets and go out in the street and start busking? So I did, and it worked. So I was going out nearly every day doing a couple of hours street performing, and it got me through the last two years of college, which I was surprised with. But then again, as soon as I finished college, I said, okay, I have to get a real job. And it kind of kept going like that. I got jobs in theatres and I got jobs in pubs and, and different things. But I kept coming back to puppetry. And I went to the States for a while and I was in Boston. I was working in three different pubs and the usual kind of story. And I got a ticket on the, the subway that could get you anywhere. And I ended up in Brookline Village one day and there was a puppet theatre at the end of the line. So I hopped out and I walked in and the guy behind the counter said, I suppose you're looking for a job. <laughs> and I said, I am actually. And he cracked up because somebody had just left. So I ended up working there. Then I moved back to Ireland and was living in Kilkenny. And uh, myself and a woman from there started a company called Bumbling Bees. And we did environmental education shows. And then I ended up working with Barnstorm in Kilkenny. Then I met my wife in Kilkenny and she was studying in the Royal Academy of Music in Stockholm. She got to travel to Stockholm to study over there. So I followed with her and I didn't realize that in Stockholm there was 12 full-time puppet theaters, eight full-time stages, a puppet library and a puppet museum. So I just... In your element. Yeah. Having come from Kilkenny, which is known for its arts yeah. and for the arts festival and all of that, mm. to go to Stockholm and be taken aback by how much more was there. Oh, it, it, it was amazing. I spent three days solid in the library going through books and the librarian said, was I there for the auditions? And I was like, I didn't know there was auditions, but they were auditioning for a performance of Faust with large marionette puppets on strings, which I had never come across before. And uh, the auditions were physical auditions. So the puppets were about 80 centimeters tall and you had strings of two meters and you were up in a balcony. So I did the, the auditions for that and uh, I got the, the place. And before I knew it, we did 180 shows around 
between Sweden, Norway, Finland, Denmark, Germany, and we went to India uh, with it. So that was it. I was like, right, I'm in. So I spent seven years working in Sweden as a puppeteer. So is Ireland, or when you look at Ireland, is puppeteering as big here as it is in other countries? No, I think uh, there is a, a history of puppetry in, in nearly every other country. It's not so much in Ireland. And it's a pity really, because I mean, Ireland, I think for storytelling and everything, it has so much richness in that. That was one of the reasons that I came back to Ireland because of the stories that are, are here. So I did a, a version of the Salmon of Knowledge and I did a version of the Legend of Larry Lynch, both of which were versions that were told by my uncle many years ago and they just came back to me and when I was reading the books I was like this is not the version I know so I went back to his version so there was great inspiration in that. When you were doing the busking on the streets of Galway yeah. tell me about the characters and what exactly were you doing? Were you telling stories or were you playing music or singing? When I was busking my first acts were just with music but then I started using my voice. I didn't like pre-recorded voice so I would always use my voice so I would sing I suppose the characters that inspired me in the pubs so I would take like well-known songs and change them and this was the, the characters that I presented on the street mainly kind of singing at the start and then I would start improvising conversations with the audience. A lot of the work that I do myself now would be with characters that I have that I improvise with with the audience that they can interact. So a lot of the stuff will happen on the spot. So I have a puppet here, will I show you? Please um, do. I'm very curious about the puppets and this, I'm curious about the yep. process, making them and building them yeah. and how big a part of your life that is. Yeah. This here is a puppet called Agnes. Oh yeah, how's it going? Great. And uh, Agnes I made uh, last year, uh, last Christmas. Yeah, I was made last Christmas. I gave you my heart. And um, Agnes, uh, I brought her first to a nursing home when I had first met her. And in the nursing home, they asked her, was she a nurse? And she said, why, what's wrong with you? So all of a sudden her character has become a nurse since then. She looks very serious. Well, you have to be serious. You know, you have to take your health seriously, you know. So I, I say I'm a health and safety nurse. Uh, can I see, can you stand straight? All right, very good. Yeah. So she, she inspects people and, and the kids react great to her, like wow. once, once she introduces herself. And there's been very comical moments that happen. Like I was up doing shows in Farmley uh, last Christmas and I had parked my van in one place and this guy came along and said, uh, as I was performing with Agnes and he said, your van shouldn't be there. And Agnes was, what? He said, your van shouldn't be there. You'll have to move it. So Agnes turned to a 10 year old and said, excuse me there. Listen, if I give you the keys of my van, would you go and, and, and park it somewhere else? And the kid was like, what? Yeah, because listen, I can't reverse because, you know, I got my license in the amnesty way back in, you know, in the time. So I can't reverse. Usually at home, I just park in a field. And, you know, <laughs> so things just come to you like so all these things that that you almost kind of forget about come forward in in uh, in the performance just out so, of the blue yeah you get prompted by something but also it's almost like the sensor that you have in your head you have to kind of say you're off now and just see what happens so you speak almost before you realize what you're saying so and it has rarely got me into trouble what they say <laughs> But yeah, so I love uh, improvising with characters like that. 
and I can bring Agnes into a pub uh, anywhere and within minutes she'll have a conversation going with somebody about whatever and I also I've been working in the the Julik Center uh, in Ennis and there's been a great response with the puppets there and I've got them to make masks and to make their own puppets and masks so I suppose that's the other side of it is the the making process you were um, making puppets I just said Tommy when you were yeah. very very young yeah Nowadays, of course, they're far more complex and clearly a lot of work has gone into Agnes. Yeah. How big a deal is and what's the process and what are the, the raw materials you'd use for making a puppet? And how big would they be? I don't build anything larger than life. I, that wasn't kind of my interest. I started with kind of small puppets and made them bigger. At the start, there was a lot of experimentation because I didn't have somebody to show me how to do it. So I was mixing papier-mâché. I would get chicken mesh wire and kind of shape it and then build papier-mâché on top of it. And I would experiment with different materials. And like when I was nine or 10, I had started working with papier-mâché and an uncle of mine, I asked him like, what makes it stick together? And he said, it's fibers. The fibers and the paper will stick together. And in my head as a, a nine, 10 year old, I thought fibers, what else has fibers? Hair has fibers. So I went to the, the local hairdresser and I asked for a bag of hair and I mixed it with wallpaper paste and wood glue and made this squishy mess, but I never put a structure inside it. So I made this shape and I was hoping that it would dry, but it just sagged and it kept sagging. So I left it out in the sun and my mum came out and she thought something had curled up and died outside and she threw it in the bin. So there was a lot of experimenting at the start. I then tried working with latex and things, but papier-mâché kind of was my main thing. And in that, I would sculpt in clay first to get the shape of the head, and then you build on top of that, and then you cut it open. And I was always interested in mouth-moving puppets. So I tried from kind of glove puppets to at the start, and it kind of progressed into much more kind of advanced, particularly when I went to Sweden, because uh, I met a, a Japanese master puppeteer in Sweden who taught me a lot of techniques to do with bunraku puppetry and mechanisms. So a lot of the puppets I build today would be wood and papier-mâché. Time-wise, a puppet could take about four weeks or so, kind of from beginning to end, because there's a lot of detail and to get the things to work the way you want them, you really have to take your time at it. Coming up, we'll be back in Glore in Ennis to continue our chat with puppeteer and puppet builder, Tommy Baker. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Today we're in Glore in Ennis, where puppeteer and puppet builder Tommy Baker has just come off stage after completing a performance with Kjol Connected. Tommy studied fine art in Galway. After college, he became a performer with Marionette Theatre Stockholm. It was while living and working in Sweden that Tommy finally made the decision to return to Ireland. When, when I was in Stockholm and working full-time as a puppeteer in Stockholm was amazing. 
and my son was born there. We didn't really have any family around us, so that was kind of a drawback to coming back to Ireland. And also, I was performing in Swedish in Sweden. It's it's great, but the humour is different, and and that, and I found that each time I came back, and I would street perform in Ireland, my characters became even more kind of exaggerated Irish. So I just had a dream about putting Irish shows on the road. Yeah, that was kind of the, the drawback to, to Ireland. And I, I said, I'm, I'm going to be a puppeteer, kind of, yeah, definitely after Stockholm. Arriving back in Ireland, I thought I'd hit the ground running, but that was not the case. So within the first year of going to venues and everything, I ended up stonewall building for about uh, two years because uh, you just have to, to make a living. But in those two years, I had the time to put together a proper show and get things organized. And then after that, then I got back to, to puppetry full time and I, I haven't looked back since. And so. are you doing your own thing or are you working with a group or various groups? I work with various groups. I build puppets for productions and I perform with other productions. At the moment I'm performing with Kjol Connected. Uh, we have a lovely show, The Land of a Hundred Little Hills, which we're touring with at the moment. And I've also worked with Barnstorm in Kilkenny, making puppets for their last performance. I also have my own performances and I'm going to the Czech Republic in March for a festival for a week. And I'll be going to Brussels as well and to Portugal. So busy, busy. So, yeah. And yeah. you're only off stage here in Glore this afternoon with Kjol Connected and four characters on stage and Thomas the Puppet. The Land of a Hundred Little Hills is based around the life of Patrick Kavanagh. And we went through his uh, poetry, which was the inspiration for the show. And uh, Thomas uh, Johnson, the director, um, and that we had a kind of an open kind of conversation where people put in different ideas about how we would kind of put the show together. And uh, it just grew very organically. And some of the songs are just uh, priceless in it. We were chatting about what was it, what was it like when you were young uh, in the group? And was there anything interesting? And I said, like, you know, when I was like seven or eight, I met a friend and we were going for a walk. And this farmer stopped us at a gate and said, oh, don't go down to the bog. And we said, why not? And he said, oh, there's a, there's a she-bean down there and, and that. We said, what did it look like? He said, oh, there's a, this creature, it's got a big long nose and it's hairy and it walks on four legs. And I said, that sounds like an anteater. He said, no, it's not an anteater. It has big claws and it has small ears and beady eyes. I said, that's definitely an anteater. <laughs> and he said, no. And he was just, don't go down to the bog. So we said, okay, and we turned around and sure, as soon as he had left the gate, we had tore down the bog, which was not our intention in the first place. And when we went through the bog, everything that rustled, we saw something and, and we, we saw hares, we saw pheasants on eggs, we saw, so it was a whole adventure uh, we had that day. You got so, a great reaction. And of course, Glore is a wonderful auditorium, wonderful reaction, lovely music. But when you step off stage afterwards, yeah. What does that feel like? You must be buzzing. It's great. This show is very, it's moving, it's soft, it's, it's just a very 
there's something gentle about it and very sweet and you sometimes sometimes I do feel the emotion of it afterwards because it, it, it there's something very special about it like a lot of my own shows would be to be a lot of comedy and uh, slapstick and and that uh, this is something different in in that sense so yeah Kjol Connected are amazing to to work with just working with live musicians on stage is just incredible so I always get a kick from the music uh, and and the caliber of the musicians you know who wouldn't want to to, to work with them Dance with me. I'll take it away You have that trip to the Czech Republic and to Brussels, but aside from that, what does the future hold for you? When I perform, I perform under your man's puppets. I have my own shows in under that. I've also worked uh, in conjunction with the Clear Arts Office, and uh, we did some amazing um, work uh, during lockdown and before lockdown with adults with disabilities and with uh, youth work. So I've had lots of support here, which is, is great. And I think there's something about the Clare audience that, that, that I like anyway. And that's so I think I've been to nearly every town in Clare and I'll, I'll do it again and again if I can. And the name Your Man's Puppets, I presume there's a story behind the name. Well, my, my grandmother, she, she rarely called somebody by their name. If you, were, if you were in trouble, then she'd use your name. If I heard Tommy... It was kind of okay. If, if I heard Thomas, I was, I was in trouble. She'd say, do you know your man on the bike? Or do you know your one? Or do you know Magunya? And, and this. So it was always this thing. And it just, the idea of your man's puppets was like, I know who it is, but I, I'm not going to say the name. So it was just kind of a, a, a little nod to that. Very good. That's how I got the name. I'm working on a new show at the moment. And I'm touring with a show that I started about two years ago. So the new show that I'm working on is, I'm, I'm not too sure yet if it's going to be an adult show or whether it's for kids. This is the thing, when you go to, to other countries like in Sweden or Germany um, or France, there's a lot of uh, puppetry for adults. What you can portray is a lot different than what you would do for kids. And it has always interested me. But whether you find a, an adult audience in Ireland uh, for puppetry, because they, they kind of presume that it's for kids. But I mean, even today's show, when adults come and see it, they can appreciate it. So I think that, I think it will work when it's there. <laughs>